0: Let's uh, hear the word of God from 1 Kings and Luke's gospel. This is the story behind his rebellion. Solomon was rebuilding the supporting terraces and repairing the walls of the city of his father, David. Jeroboam was a very capable young man. And when Solomon saw how industrious he was, he put him in charge of the labor force from the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph. One day, as Jeroboam was leaving Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh met him along the way. Ahijah was wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone in a field, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 of these pieces, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give 10 of the tribes to you. But I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. For Solomon has abandoned me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites. He has not followed my ways and done what is pleasing in my sight. He has not obeyed my decrees and regulations as David his father did. But I will not take the entire kingdom from Solomon at this time. For the sake of my servant David, the one whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees, I will keep Solomon as leader for the rest of his life. But I will take the kingdom away from his son and give ten of the tribes to you. His son will have one tribe so that the descendants of David, my servant, will continue to reign, shining like a lamp in Jerusalem, the city I have chosen to be the place for my name. And I will place you on the throne of Israel, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. If you listen to what I tell you and follow my ways, and do whatever I consider to be right, and if you obey my decrees and commands as my servant David did, then I will always be with you. I will establish an enduring dynasty for you as I did for David, and I will give Israel to you. Because of Solomon's sin, I will punish the descendants of David." though not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but he fled to King Shishak of Egypt and stayed there until Solomon died. And now to the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, "This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the son of man be to this generation." The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Now to Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher! Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them and how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need him. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thanks, Tonya. So everybody got a handout. It's just the passage we read, so uh, if you didn't get one, um, you can grab one, you can raise your hand, we can get one to you, or you can take one at the end. Um, so don't jump ahead to this, we'll look at this later. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here, it's good to see you guys. We are in a sermon series, getting a buzz, is there anything I can do? Scoot back or, okay. Um, in a sermon series going through Samuel and Kings. These are Old Testament uh, historical narratives and in these narratives, we learn about God calling the prophet Samuel and the people wanting a king and the, the people inheriting the land and living in the land. And this is where we are in the story. But I want to start the sermon by talking about the glory days. Anybody know the glory days? You've heard the phrase? There's actually a Bruce Springsteen song that came out when I was a kid, glory days. It's always, I love it. It's a good song. It talks about these, you know, people sitting around talking about, when they were good at sports, or when they were, these things happened, or those, the, the glory days. And uh, I've even heard it said, if we could just get back to the glory days, everything will be okay. So what are the glory days? In sports, I think the glory days are easy to define. I've actually had some encounters with some Waypoint people who were at UNC in the early 80s when Michael Jordan was there. One of our Waypoint people actually rode in Michael Jordan's car. I mean, those, those are the glory days, right, when... I'm an Auburn fan. The glory days for Auburn, people say, are like the mid-80s when Charles Barkley, Frank Thomas and Bo Jackson were there at the same time, you know. I'm a Dolphins fan, the 72 Dolphins, the greatest team of all time, you know. My dad would talk about, that was before I was born, those are the glory days. A lot of people talk about the Bulls, you know, when they, the championships, the glory days, the Celtics. Um, but then when it's, when we're thinking about it as individuals or society, just getting back to the glory days, it gets a little more blurry. The problem is, what are the glory days? In a sinful and broken world, almost always the glory days for some might be at the expense or misery of others, right? So for one nation to be really prosperous, maybe they have to exploit another nation. Look at human history. This is very, very common. Um, It seems like it's necessarily, it's not that necessarily the system is broken. But because people implementing the system are broken and sinful. You get where I'm going with this. So the glory days. I've I've actually heard multiple wise people inside and outside the church who care about and think about government and policies admit that unfortunately in most situations the best system for humans to flourish must be built around the acknowledgement that people are sinful and greedy. Uh, Yet greed normally leads to the demise of a society. So this puts us in a quandary, a dilemma. And I believe this is a major reason why people disagree on government implementation and policies inside and outside the church. So my question for us this morning is, how are we to live? What type of kingdom should we strive to build for us to live as Christ's people? And how are are we to do this? This is the million-dollar question. If you could write the book, and it's totally right, you uh, win the prize, and every government would function fine, and we'd be okay. And I I think as Christians, we are commanded to pursue Christ-like justice and mercy in the church and in all realms of society, and we're called to be part of the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated 2,000 years ago. What does Jesus say when he's... Enters into his ministry as a 30 year old man. You know, he's baptized and he says, Repent, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. So we look to the Bible, we look to God's holy word for wisdom and truth. How does the Bible present the kingdom that God wants us to pursue? Are there some glory days to look back to and strive to achieve? What does the Old Testament say? What does the New Testament say? Uh, oftentimes when I preach, I walk us through Bible history by starting over here and saying, you know, this is the garden when things were good. So this is probably the closest we got to the glory days. And then there's the fall, Adam and Eve sin and the brokenness and all the destruction and the flood and the tower of Babel. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham, but Abraham on his own continues to fail Abraham and Sarah, but because of God's covenant faithfulness, the promise that God makes with Abraham that they could establish some resemblance of the garden starts happening. And God makes his covenant with Abraham, who doesn't have a nation, he's not great in any way. And he turns into through a long process with Moses and the desert and Egypt and the wilderness and all that. And they get into the land and Joshua conquers the land. And then we get to where we are in the story. They got the land, they got the king. They got God's favor. It's the closest they ever got to Eden. They're in the glory days, right? The time of Solomon is the glory days as far as earthly measures are concerned. So that's a little Old Testament history of where we are in the narrative. They're in the glory days. But why does the New Testament not refer, only has two references to Solomon, and we just read those, and it doesn't say, let's get back to that. Because Jesus comes to inaugurate a new kingdom. The glory days are not to return to the time of Solomon. So let's, let's dig in Solomon's life real fast, and then let's look at Jesus and the new kingdom he inaugurates. So here's a brief historical and theological tour of the timeline of Solomon's life as presented by the writers of Kings. Remember, Old Testament narrative is historical and theological. The per- people giving you it, the person who wrote Kings and Samuel is not trying to just give you a hundred percent historical account. W- although everything's historical and, and ac- accurate, but it's also theological. You tracking with me on that? So that's it's it's trying to do both. Um, it's not just a, a log saying this is he did this on this day. He did this on this day. There, there's historical teaching. I mean, there's theological teaching in the history. So let's just look at it. And this is just the subtitles in our, one of our modern English translations. So it starts off, 1 Kings, David in his old age. Uh, then his, one of his sons tries to claim the throne. But David actually makes Solomon king, different son. So there's already war and strife happening in, in David's kingdom. Uh, then David gives the final instructions to Solomon and we looked at this last week but i'm just going to put it up for a second and i want us to look at this passage and it says that at the time of king david as the time of king david's death approach he gave us this charge to his son solomon observe the requirements of the lord your god and follow all his ways keep his decrees and commands so i want to keep this up but i want you to focus on what i'm about to say so when The Old Testament is is giving us these historical narratives. It's doing a couple things. It's giving us information, just giving us historical facts. Then it's teaching us things that it wants to affirm, that are good, that line up with God's holy law and God's goodness. Then it's also, at points, rebukes, that what the characters are doing in the narrative is wrong. It's rebuking them. And then it could correct and provide a path for those characters or either they're doing it or provide a narrative to what they should have done. And it always tries to bring glory back to God. This is what's going on theologically. So in this point of the narrative, uh, the, the narrator, the, the writer of Kings, is trying to show us this is good. This, this is what God said through, through David to his son Solomon. And this is a good thing that should be affirmed continue on in the narrative. So then Solomon establishes his rule. God gets rid God allows for Solomon to be king, David's other sons. Uh, everyone agrees Solomon should be king and there's no civil war or anything. So next slide. So Solomon es- establishes his rule and then Solomon asks for wisdom. And then Solomon makes an allegiance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. The narrator's trying to show you here that this is a rebuke. Solomon should not have gone back to Egypt. It's very, very clear in the law of Moses that you shouldn't go back and get anything have anything to do with Egypt, let alone align yourself with Pharaoh. Solomon did this because he was he want, he was scared, even though God says, "I will protect you, you don't need the power and strength of of Egypt's army, but Solomon did it because he was scared, and this this is a rebuke at this point. Um, continue on the The narrative shows that Oh, in the thing, it says that Solomon also gave burnt offerings to God. So this is an affirmation that even though Solomon's being rebuked for taking this uh, Egyptian woman as his wife, not because he loved her, he had never met her. He just wanted the political alliance. In in ancient kingdoms, if you needed a political alliance, you had to marry the daughter of the king. And it was kind of saying that now our two kingdoms are aligned. Uh, Continue on in the narrative. Solomon uh, Solomon judges wisely. Solomon's officials uh, and governors, Solomon asked God for wisdom. You guys know that story. It's a very we, we looked at it last week. Solomon continues to prosper in wisdom. The narrative's just informing of this. Uh, then it, the narrative starts telling us that they have all this stuff. If we jump ahead, it says that Solomon's dominion extended over all the kingdoms west of the Euphrates uh, from Tisha to Gaza, and there was peace on all his borders. During the lifetime of Solomon, all of Ju- Judah and Israel lived in peace and safety. And from Dan in the north to Bashirah Bashir in the south, each family had his own home and garden. So this is, the Bible saying, this isn't to Solomon's credit or Joshua or anyone else's credit. This is to God's credit. God, the covenant that God makes with Abraham over here and the, the promise that I'll return you to the garden if you honor me and trust me, even though they failed all along the way, God made it happen. Notice the word garden. Notice the word peace. Notice the rivers. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll see the same imagery. At this moment, God is telling, the narrator wants you to know that this is, this is it. They achieved the garden. If, if Solomon and the people would have just honored God at this point, they wouldn't have even needed, even needed an army. God would have continually protected them and given them everything they needed. They just needed to, to continue to worship God and honor him and trust him in all areas of life. What's the next line? Verse 26. The narrator's showing us something. Solomon had 4,000 stalls and his chariot horses, and he had 12,000 horses. The narrator's kind of saying, Solomon doesn't trust God. We're not Hebrew Poets, you know we don't. You guys don't live in the in their world, but this is what all scholars agree. What the narrator is doing, you see what he's doing. He's saying you got back to the garden, but even in that, Solomon didn't trust God. Let's continue on in the narrative. Preparations for the building of the temple. Lawrence talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into this. But Solomon builds the temple. Then the the story, the narrative continues with the temple's interior, and we'll look at this section where it says. So he took seven years to build the temple. But then when Solomon builds his palace, it took 13 years. You see what the narrator's doing here? Trying to show <laughs> the sin of Solomon. Um, continuing on in the chapter to, to verse 12, it says, The walls of the great courtyard were built there one, were, so that there was one layer of cedar beams between each layer of finished stone. Just like the walls of the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple and its anteroom." This is a rebuke. The narrator's trying to show you that Solomon built his temple like the innards of the courtyard. Not a good idea. You see, that's God's holy place. You see what the narrator is doing? Then it goes on, it talks about the furnishings of the temple. This is all taking us from 1 Kings chapter 1 through like chapter 10. The ark is brought to the temple. Solomon praises the Lord. Solomon's prayer of dedication, the dedication of the temple. And some of you may be like, hey, we're doing a series on 1 and 2 Kings. Why didn't we talk about the dedication of the temple? We will when we do Chronicles. We're going to do Chronicles. We're going through the whole Bible in 10 years. We will uh, talk about this and, 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 and talk about the significance of this dedication. But for now, I just want you to see what's going on in Solomon's life. And then the Lord responds to Solomon. He's like, thank you for building my temple. But you can see the narrator showing Solomon slips, of, You know, little jabs showing, this is where Solomon continues to slip. Then Solomon makes this agreeam, agreement with Hiram. Just a a low-level king, but the narrator wants you to know how significant it is because this guy's linked to boats and to the ability to get more wealth. Then Solomon's. Then the Bible talks about Solomon's many achievements, but it goes back in verse 24. It says Solomon moved his wife, Pharaoh's daughter, into the new palace. That's a rebuke. But then it says, three times a year, Solomon presented birth offerings and peace offerings on the altar he had built. This is an affirmation. This is a good thing. Then it says, King Solomon also had a fleet of ships uh, at a port near the land of Eden along the Red Sea. Hiram, the guy that he made this pact with earlier, sent experienced crews of sailors to uh, sail the ships with Solomon's men. They sailed to Orpah and brought back Solomon some 16 tons of gold. Now, in earthly measures, this would sound like a good thing, but God doesn't want Solomon to have a lot of gold. We looked at that last week. You see how what the narrator's doing here. He's saying Solomon's trying to honor God, but he keeps going back to wealth, power, and sex, and money, and he, he, he's, he's living in this tension, and Solomon keeps yielding to the things of this world. Then there's the visit of Queen Sheba, this exotic queen who has a lot of wealth that comes and visits him and says, you have more wealth than I do. Um... Then the narrative shows the splendor of Solomon. And I would say this is informative and it's a rebuke. Solomon should, he should have redistributed this wealth back to God and God's people. He just keeps it all. Um, And then it says Solomon loved many foreign women. This is a clear rebuke. Uh, It says, in fact, they did turn his hearts away from the Lord. Lawrence talked about this last week. The narrative goes on about talking about Solomon's adversaries. And it says... That God, because of his sin, God allows outside invaders from all these nations that Solomon could have easily conquered. He has the military might, but God allows their armies to begin to chip away at Solomon's power because he's so worried about keeping his money and keeping his power. So you see what's going on in the narrative. And then we get to the, and God allows this to happen. Then we get to the point in the narrative where Jeroboam rebels against Sarah, uh, Solomon. That's the story, that, the account that Tonya read this morning. And then the narrative says Solomon dies. And then after that, a civil war starts and the kingdom is divided. And about 340 years later, the kingdom completely ends. So all that from Abraham up to this beautiful recreation of the garden to a beautiful kingdom where people could live in peace and prosperity and honoring God falls apart. And then all the kings which we're going to learn about over the next few weeks, become just like the pagan kings. Long history lesson, but you guys get what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to show you what the narrator of Kings is doing. When we look at this story of Jeroboam, we see a couple things. One is God's faithfulness to his covenant. You know, he says, I will leave him one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem. It's not because of what Solomon did, but it's because of God's faithfulness to the covenant he made with David. And then he goes on and he says, um, "David, my servant, will continue to reign, shining like a lamp in Jerusalem." And Jesus does come from the line of David and Solomon. We'll we'll look at that over Advent in a couple weeks. But if you notice, what do you notice about Jeroboam? He's like. Remember when Saul was king and he failed, and who did God raise up? Saul's son? No, he went outside and brought David in. Now, Solomon, the same thing's happening. See what God's doing? Literally, the same thing. Jeroboam is like David was. He's an outs- He's someone who works for the king, who now God is saying, I'm going to allow you part of the kingdom. Interesting thing to Jeroboam, God offers him the same basic promise he offered Saul and David, that if you do right, this kingdom will prosper. That's the kind of God we serve. He... He, he wanted them to, to succeed. He knew they wouldn't, and he knew he would have to send Jesus, but he gives them this promise. Old Testament scholar Bob File says the main things of First and 2 Kings is this. Ruling justly and wisely depends on obeying God's word, and disobeying has serious consequences. Solomon became like Saul. He became like Pharaoh. He became just another pagan king. and He had everything. I want us to learn two things from the Solomon account, and then we'll head into the New Testament. One. There, the first one is, I want us to remember these two things. One is, narrative is not normative. So remember that. Lawrence talked about this last week. Um... <laughs> uh, People in the Bible are sinful, broken human beings that are part of God's redemptive story. And remember my guide to biblical narrative that I gave earlier. The the historical narrative is to inform us, to teach us or affirm a truth of a righteous action, to rebuke unrighteous actions, to correct the unrighteous action, and to bring people to repentance and to point them back to Christ and to show God's glory. So these narratives don't mean that we're to emulate Solomon. The Bible thinks that Solomon having all these wives for political alliance and and seeking after power, money, and sex is a bad thing. It starts showing this in Genesis right after we fall, and it continues to show this through the exile, that, that these are bad things. They're not things to be, they're not normative. And I know for some of you, when you hear about All the Wives or you hear about some of the darkness, the violence in the Old Testament, and it's, it's hard for you. You struggle. You wrestle. And that's okay. That is okay. You should wrestle with it because the narrators of each of these accounts is showing you how to wrestle with it. And the heroes of the Old Testament are really the pro- – the hero is God. But the human heroes are the prophets, the ones who are the voice, pe- the voice for God, rebuking the sin and pointing people back to God. In in Matthew's account, say, for example, Solomon's mentioned very r- rarely. In Matthew's, the gospel, the the, the story of Jesus, four Hebrew people. But the prophets are mentioned over like 60 times. Obviously, Ma- the, Matthew doesn't want you to hone in on David and Solomon and their kingdom. He wants you to focus on the new kingdom of Jesus and how the prophets promised that over and over and over again. So narrative is not normative. So if you... If you're struggling with this, come talk to me. Come talk to us. We want to help you through this. The Old Testament is beautiful and it's filled with God's love and redemption. But God does it through broken people. That brings us to the next point. The living God is active in history. And these two points were not my own. These are from Bob File, the Old Testament scholar who I used his, uh, his definition or his theme of, um, of first and second Kings. The living God is active in history. We have a Bible that doesn't cover stuff up. You know in ancient history, when one king takes over, what he does with all the stuff of the other king? Does he save all the good historical records? No. They wipe it all out and try to just hone in on the, the bad stuff, make the other king look bad to make yourself look good. That's what people do. That's what history is. is trying to erase the parts of history that make you look bad and, and, keep, and elevate the parts of history that make you look good. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible just shows the brokenness of a broken, sinful people and the faithfulness and goodness of a good God who loves people despite of the brokenness. And the living God is active in history. In the Old Testament and the, into the New Testament shows this. this. So that's the story of Solomon. I want us to just jump ahead to when Jesus does teach us on Solomon. So I talked about how the living God is, is active in history. And then I talked about, you know, how narrative, Old Testament narrative is not normative. We're not supposed to, we're supposed to imitate the, when these people are doing good in their faithfulness. We're not supposed to imitate them when they're sinning. So it's okay to look to Moses. It's okay to look to Miriam and, and Deborah and these other people But you know, and, and, and Abraham. But it's not okay to say that their sin is something we should duplicate. It's, it's us recognizing their sin and their brokenness and then saying, how could we commit the same types of sins? Why has God put this in here? What is this teaching us? So if we're to remember those two things, then what are we supposed to do? And this is my challenge to myself and all of us this morning. Find where the story helps us see ourselves in God's story. So if you forget everything else I just taught about the history of the Jewish people and Solomon, if you're just not there yet, you're not a Bible history buff, that didn't make a lot of sense to you. Remember this, when you encounter a story in the Old Testament... Find where this story helps us see ourselves in God's story. And I promise you, if you look and you pray, you'll see it. And if you need help, you need commentary, uh, the Bible Project uh, videos are really great. They have concise videos on every book of the Bible. Uh, Talk to us. We can help you find resources to help you understand God's redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation. But find ways where the story helps us see ourselves and by ourselves I mean yourself individually and then us ourselves corporately as a church find where the story helps us see ourselves as God's people under the new covenant people of the gospel people of the good news when i was a kid i remember i went to this sunday school and I went to a church that, you know, hey, we were there all day. We got there at like 9 in the morning. I don't think we left. It seemed like we didn't leave till like 4 in the afternoon, but we probably left at like 1. But in Sunday school, we would always learn the stories of the Israelites wandering in the desert. And I remember like being in like by 5th grade, I was like, I can't learn another story about these terrible people. They just continue to do dumb things. And I think I was in about ninth grade or 10th grade, sitting in a youth group maybe listening to a talk or something and i was like now i know why we had to learn the stories because they had got they get got the story is basically they're hopeless they have no hope they're going to die wherever they are in the desert or, or whatever they cry out to god god help us god helps them provides what they need they're like thanks for your help god i'll take it from here they go their own way they don't trust god and then God allows, lets them go their own way and doesn't provide protection and provision for them. And then they fail. Oh, God, please help us. Well, we do the same thing. That's our spiritual journey. And that's not a bad thing. We're broken people. It's okay when you struggle. It's okay to feel despair. It's okay to, to, to question God, to say, God, why are you doing this? I love the fact that the wisdom literature is in the, in the Old Testament, too. We have Job. We have Ecclesiastes, and we have the Song of Songs. If you didn't listen to our sermon series on Job, Ecclesiastes, or Song of Songs, I can recommend a couple of sermons to help you and maybe some podcasts. And all those are linked to the wise parts of Solomon and the wise things that David did and the wise things that happened. But they also show the brokenness of the system. So the Old Testament gives us all that we need to really process this and know God. So I wanna ask this question today. Are we like Solomon? Is the modern American like Solomon? If I ask some people, you'd be like, of course not. We're not. We're not rich. We don't have all this power and money and stuff. But I would argue that we are like Solomon. We have access to limitless power, sex, and money. In America, you have access to all this stuff. You have the ability to turn to all these things for comfort, for pleasure. You can work, you know, work hard, play hard, and you can turn your back on God and get all the pleasure you want. So in a way, in a very strong way, we're very much like Solomon. Compared to all the people who have ever lived, we're by far... (laughs) among the richest. Look at human history. The average person who has ever lived ever had to pray to God or the gods or whoever for their next meal, for rain. We're dependent on something. We we can just show up and food's there. We are blessed beyond belief. We are blessed like Solomon. And I say this to myself too. So will we be accountable to God like Solomon? That's my question. Let's look at Luke 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus says, said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, if you don't know this story, basically, Jonah, the same guy who got swallowed by the fish, God says, go to this pagan nation, tell them to repent. Jonah thinks he's going to tell them, but because they're pagans, not, they don't repent, but they actually do, and they're like, we're sorry. And Jonah's angry at God because they repented. It's a, it's a great story. It's four chapters. Go read it if you've never read it before. But it, it, Jesus is saying, so also the Son of Man to this generation. Then this is what I want us to hone in on. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. I'm not going to focus and teach on that part. I want to teach on this part. I want you to remember this. Jesus says this. And now something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus only teaches on Solomon twice. The pinnacle of the Old Testament on in earthly terms is Solomon. The pinnacle of the Old Testament in spiritual terms is God's covenants that he makes with Adam and Eve. God's covenants that he makes with Noah. God's covenant that he makes with Abraham. God's saving them, the exodus, that's the pinnacle of the Old Testament. And God, the covenant he renews and makes with Moses and the faithfulness he has to the people and the covenant he makes with David. Spiritually, the covenants, the faithfulness of God, but in a human eyes, the pinnacle, the high point, the glory days of the Old Testament is Solomon, and Jesus says this. Now something greater than Solomon is here. We have access to everything like Solomon did, but something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus continues his teaching on Matthew, and y'all, this is this is true. I, I in sermons you need an illustration because y'all are probably bored out of your minds right now. You're like this history teacher's up there and he's just talking. And I was like, God, give me an illustration. I saw this this morning at like 9.50. Show it. Okay. This was on my phone on the news. Home buyers are having a come to Jesus moment as mortgage rates now top 7%. This was the, the president of a major real estate company said that it's a come to Jesus moment because people have to come. You, you need God's intervention because mortgage rates hit 7%. How many were the Jimmy Carter years my parents told me, early Reagan years? It was like 18%, something like that, crazy, crazy times. Y'all, we live in a culture that loves money, and we love comfort. And I I don't want anyone to suffer, and I know some of you are probably trying to buy a house right now, and seeing this is is hard, and and I don't want that to be the case here. I, I bring this up just to show that our culture just doesn't know what to do. We don't want God. We don't want God. Then the economy crashes. Oh, God, please help us. Let's not be like that. All right. I'm going to end today's sermon by giving you guys, this is what's on your paper, what is called the parable of the rich fool and Jesus teaching about do not worry. And the paper I gave you didn't have the headlines because I just want you to take this. And I'm just going to read through it and let the spirit teach you. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to be a judge or arbitrator between you? Which is ironic, because Jesus is the ultimate judge. Uh, he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is Jesus' words, not mine. I'm just going to leave you guys with that. Life does not list consists of an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. There's echoes of Solomon in this parable. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Again, echoes to Solomon. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I think this is a stern warning for all of us, myself included. I love stuff. Y'all ever seen the Veggie Tales, Madam Blueberry, Stuff Mart? It's the best one, I think. Go watch it if you haven't. There's more biblical theology in that 20-minute video than probably hundreds, than any sermon I've ever given. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have? Oh, sorry. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The account continues into verse twelve. And at the beginning of the sermon I talked about the glory days. And a kingdom. And what kingdom are we to seek? What does the Bible say? This is the kingdom that. Sell everything you have to get. Jesus literally says, sell everything you have to get this kingdom. And when he's speaking of the kingdom, this is what Jesus says in the Luke account. This account is also in Matthew. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. This isn't a reprimand of... People who love clothes, just so you know that. consider the ravens. they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Interesting thing, Jesus could have picked any bird, but he chooses ravens, and kings will learn this later. God feeds the prophet Elijah with ravens. There's a lot of Old Testament stuff woven into this text. Who of you by worrying, can add a single hour? to your life since you cannot do this very little thing why do you worry about the rest and this isn't about clinical anxiety please hear me out y'all this is worry about possessions and money and building bigger storehouses because you're worried what would happen if the storehouses I now I have now faint, fall apart this is not clinical anxiety if you if you struggle with clinical anxiety if you, if you have it if you if, if you're just doubting fear come talk to us We want to help you and love you through that. That is not what Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing worry because you've built big barns. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon. This is the second time. Jesus only teaches on Solomon twice. I'm giving you both of his teachings about the glory days, the pinnacle of the kingdom. Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. In God's kingdom, which Jesus came to bring, a wildflower is better than Solomon. Is not how that? Sorry, if that is not how glo- God closes the grass, clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will He clothe you? you of little faith. I'm going to end with this. The reason why I gave you this paper, take it home. We're going to study Luke. We're doing an Advent series that starts Luke, and we're going to get back to this passage. I'm not going to teach you on it. I want the Spirit to teach you on it. Take this paper home and keep it with you and over the next couple of months, over the Christmas season where there's, you know, just a lot of processing Materialism, but also gift-giving and celebration, they're all good. There's a balance that we're called to as believers to live and prosper in this kingdom and to love each other. And, but it's also how, to, how do we not let possessions control us like Solomon? God wanted Solomon to have good... God wanted peace in the city. It was a good thing. So take this home, process it, and in a couple months we'll come back to it in a sermon, in a series. And just ask God, what does it mean for you To learn from this and and say god i want my treasure to be in your kingdom i want i want to treasure your kingdom above all else let's pray god i thank you for the lessons that you did not hide in the old testament or the new testament that you show us the brokenness so that we can turn to you and say god you are always providing a way no matter how sinful we are no matter how broken we are no matter what we do you love us, and you're like, turn back to me, and I will forgive you, and I saved you. God, I pray that we'll be a people who don't let sex, money, and power turn us from your goodness, that we will be a people who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness in all things. I thank you for this congregation, God, and I pray that we can live this out together as we love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.